Alrighty, everyone. So in constitutional law, we were talking about the Commerce Clause, and I had already started talking about the Commerce Clause in a previous episode. I'm going to say that that episode is not irrelevant, but I would use this episode to replace kind of the content of that episode to an extent. And the reason for that is because I'm going to go over everything again. There's ultimately going to be one more episode on the Commerce Clause after this one, but I just want you to know that episode is going to cover some of the same material in this episode. There's going to be some things in that episode that I don't talk about in this, so I would still recommend listen, listening to it, but ultimately we're going to cover some of the same material. And the reason for that is because I want to go over federalism again, the difference between uh, the state powers and the congressional powers because that's something that the Commerce Clause in its limitations and expansions has really had a hard time trying to figure out how much power goes to the states, how much power goes to Congress. And some of these cases are going to illustrate that purpose. The one thing to note about federalism that I think is just important to say is that it is the separation of state and federal governments. And there are pros and cons to federalism. Uh, the biggest pros is that there's going to be economic um, efficiency, meaning you can ship goods, uh, apples and oranges produced in uh, in California uh, to Iowa, where we don't produce any oranges, and corn from Iowa over into states that don't get corn. It's, Federalism allows this economic efficiency, and the Commerce Clause is a way of regulating this and to ensure that these goods traveling over state lines has as much economic efficiency as possible. And so that's some of the reason why the Commerce Clause is there, is to make sure that states aren't harming other states because certain states produce certain things that only that state produces and vice versa with other states. So the Commerce Clause, the Constitution, United States Constitution, Article 1, uh, the powers of Congress, and talks about the Commerce Clause, and it says that Congress has the ability to regulate commerce among the states. And the courts have interpreted this in several different ways throughout history, throughout time. I'm going to say that there are five stages. Today we're going to go over the first four, and then next time we talk about the Commerce Clause, we'll go over the last stage. Stage one is the first expansion, meaning expanding the federal and Congress power of how they interpret the Commerce Clause. Stage two is the first limitation. Stage three is the second expansion. Stage four is the third expansion, and then stage five is going to be the second limitation. Let's go ahead and start with stage one, the first expansion. This is Gibbons v. Ogden. We had already talked about this. It expanded commerce to include, first of all, navigation, and then that navigation can be used to override states' laws that was used there. So big takeaways from this, navigation is commerce. Congress has the ability to regulate interstate commerce, and it overpowers any licenses that the state gives, federal is going to trump over that. However, in this case, 
the state still had the power to regulate everything that was purely internally generated within the state. And this is going to change with future expansions. But that's really our big takeaway from Gibbons v. Ogden. In stage two, we have our first limitation stage, and this is going to be Hammer versus Dagenhart, and this was a child labor case. What happened here is that Congress ended up passing a law to regulate commerce from businesses that engage in child labor, uh, children that uh, businesses that employ children underneath the age of 14 or employ children uh, between ages 14 to 16 for longer than eight hours a day or for more than or six or more days of work a week. And so the whole point of this regulation was to address child labor. And the side parts of it is really commerce was the way that they were trying to do this. So what it did is it restricted goods that shipped out of state from these businesses. And we see here the issue. The issue is that Congress attempted to create these restrictions on businesses under the premise that these goods are going to ship over state. The majority in this case in Hammer says that the purpose of the bill matters. That is, the legislator, legislation is not allowed to control commerce that infringes on the state's police power. So uh, child labor was something that states had the right to uh, focus on, and the way that they had the rights there is police powers refers to the state's ability to regulate the welfare, uh, the economic, and other features of the state as well, just to make sure that everyone's well-being is good. And Congress is not allowed to infringe on those state powers, and by trying to use the Commerce Clause, the majority says that the they were trying to overstep that state powers there. The dissent disagrees, and they say that the purpose doesn't matter, meaning whether it's targeting child labor. All that matters is that it's using it to address commerce. Uh, they're regulating commerce and going over uh, state lines, and as a result, uh, what else doesn't matter? So the test that's created by the majority here is called the manufacture test, and this is a way of categorizing, that word's going to be important, what is considered commerce. And so in essence, what Congress was attempting to do here was use the Commerce Clause to target the manufacturer rather than the shipping, the thing that is actually considered commerce. And if it targets manufacturer instead of shipping, it's unconstitutional. And if it targets shipping instead of manufacturer, then it is constitutional. So in other words, if the legislation directly affects commerce, commerce, then it's going to be constitutional, and if it indirectly affects commerce, then it's going to be considered unconstitutional. That's the big takeaway from Hammer versus Dagenhart, and that was our first limitation. We have now our stage three, which is our second expansion, and the second expansion occurred underneath the New Deal. The New Deal was a whole lot of legislation that was passed by FDR uh, coming out of World War One into uh, the Great Depression and trying to address all the economic deficiencies that were going on in the United States at that time. And so he was trying to create a, a strong uh, administrative state to provide for the welfare of the people. And he tried doing that a lot of the time through the Commerce Clause. 
And so we see in United States v. Darby a very similar fact pattern to that in Hammer v. Dagenhart. In this instance, it was addressing labor hours of not overworking employees. And it's also focusing, I think, minimum wage as well. But same kind of thing, regulating commerce, uh, goods being shipped out of the uh, out of the area by businesses that engaged in this practice. And the court here overturned Hammer, and they used the exact reasoning that the dissent uses. Ultimately, there's two parts of this case. Uh, first is that the goods were in, in considered interstate commerce because it travels over state lines. But the fact that it's the wages and the hours were attached to it does not matter because it is attached into that interstate commerce. As a result, Congress is able to restrict. So even though the purpose was to restrict the hours and wages, because it's attached to the interstate commerce, it was all right. Now, here's the controversial part of this case. Uh, the court addresses a counter-argument saying that the Tenth Amendment gives powers to the states that's not afforded uh, to, the Cong- to Congress, and as a result, this would not be a constitutional thing if that's the case. And the court says that the Tenth Amendment really doesn't apply. It's but a truism, is the actual words. And so, in essence, it's really just saying the Tenth Amendment is worthless unless if it's a really, really far exaggeration of uh, overreach of Congress's power. And that's highly debatable, So to, just because it is, to pretty much say that an amendment of the Constitution of the United States does not apply, but is simply there just to be a phrase and to encourage a policy instead of actually being that is something that is very debatable. The big takeaway from this and other uh, the other New Deal cases is that the New Deal, New Deal was ultimately successful in the long run of making sure that the policies, the administrative state was in existence because eventually most of these legislation, pieces of legislation were upheld. Our second case associated with the New Deal is Wickard versus Filburn. And I actually did these two out of order, and I did it on purpose. The reason why they were in a different order originally was because of the categorical versus functional. And I'll get into functional because Wickard is an example of functional. So Hammer was an example of categorical. And what I mean by that is you have categories of direct versus indirect effect on commerce. And here you have a functional interpretation of how you interpret commerce and what that functional interpretation is, a practical, pragmatic approach, what's uh, beneficial for the time. And so the reason for this is because categories over time tend to deteriorate because times change. And a functional test continues to develop with the passage of time. So in this case... What ultimately happens is the court uses a functional test, and that test is called the substantial economic effect test. So in this case, it was about a farmer who had produced excess weight, uh, wheat 
but he was using it mostly for himself. And so he's arguing that everything here is local. If you remember from Gibbons v. Ogden, everything that is local is regulated by the state. And so he's saying, well, everything here is local. I've got very little of it going over state lines. And Congress expands this out to say, even if you alone are having a minimal effect, if we aggregate everybody who's doing this, then that's going to have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. So ultimately what happens here is that Congress can regulate local commerce that has a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. That is our uh, substantial effect test. And it's important to note that aggregation can be used to meet the substantial effect test. Stage four now is our third expansion, and this was an expansion under civil rights. Both these cases, Hardefin Lantum Motel versus United States and Katzenbach versus McClung, focus on racial discrimination. They both address uh, Title II of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, which regulated the commerce of hotels and restaurants and that engaged in sexual, uh, sorry, not sexual discrimination, but racial discrimination. And the purpose for this legislation, Congress says, is racial discrimination has a substantial economic effect, meaning when you discriminate against a certain race, well then, those races aren't able to participate in certain activities, such as lodging and dining, which keeps them from engaging in economic activities and spreading commerce and marketability. So it has this discrimination, in a sense, keeps, it has a substantial economic effect. And Congress had a rational basis for establishing this. So our big takeaway from these two cases is even if the activity is local, same kind of thing that we just talked about in Wicker versus Philborn, if the activity is local, if it has a substantial economic effect, this applies to people's interstate commerce as well as goods going over interstate lines as well. And this can be done through aggregation. All that still happened. So our big expansion of the third expansion is really going into influencing people as well as goods. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, 
we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.